Welcome to Subversion. Subversion is a podcast dedicated to exploring big ideas, pushing against accepted opinion, and just maybe inciting some more creative subversion in society. This week's episode is a conversation with Josh Sakay. Josh is the co-founder and the CEO of Ephemeral Tattoos. Now, Ephemeral Tattoos makes tattoos that disappear. We talk a little bit of what about what's gone into actually building that company, and in particular, Josh and his team were able to fund Ephemeral without raising venture capital funding for quite a long time, and then they were able to raise venture capital funding without having actually released a product yet. So we talk about what went into both of those. A lot of people think you have to have a product in order to raise any kind of funding, and a lot of people think you have to pursue funding in order to have money in the bank to provide for yourself. Uh, We also talk about whether or not you should pursue media attention as a startup. A lot of founders, a lot of young founders think that it's really important to pursue media attention. Josh says, maybe, maybe not. We delve into that as well. Before we get started, I do want to say that Subversion is a project of 1517 Fund. 1517 Fund supports teams led by young founders with grant, pre-seed, and seed stage funding. If you are a young founder looking to build your future, you can get in touch with us at 1517fund.com forward slash take dash action. That is 1517fund.com forward slash take dash action. Because a real education is a liberation. Now, for this week's show. Josh, thanks for joining me today. Of course, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, can you tell me a little bit about Ephemeral Tattoos, your company? Yeah, of course. Uh, So, we are creating tattoo inks that are applied just like conventional inks with a tattoo artist that disappear completely on their own. The first inks we've tested last roughly three to four months, and we're creating longer-term inks, think like a six-month tattoo, in parallel. Uh, We started doing research on the original technology around four years ago, which feels like a really long time. And at this point, we've taken the tech from in vitro studies in the labs all the way to human studies. And we've raised just north of $4 million from some really incredible investors. Including 1517 Fund, right? Of course, of course. <laughs> um, so what, what led you to want to start a company that makes disappearing tattoo ink? Yeah, good, good question. Um, so I've always loved tattoos, but I come from a fairly conservative household. My parents actually came here from Iran in the early 80s. So as you can imagine, there isn't a whole lot of ink out there. So to try and keep you know, peace in the house, and, and also because I really couldn't figure out what I would want to commit to forever, I never got a conventional tattoo. Um, at the same time, my co-founder had a similar experience growing up, but had, I, I mean, I guess the courage, we can put it that way, to get one. Uh, Long story short, his parents flipped out. He went for one session of laser surgery, realized how expensive, how painful, and how physically damaging and physically scarring the laser session was. And from there, the idea for ephemeral or some sort of semi-permanent tattoo was was born. So what are the use cases for semi-permanent tattoos? 
Yeah, good, good question. So we see it in two ways. The, the first way, which is kind of more obvious, is you know, if you're thinking about getting some sort of permanent tattoo ink, but you're not quite sure about the sizing or placement or detail or artistry, especially if it's your first piece, you might want to try something before you commit forever. The second use case, which I'm personally much more excited by and, and what I relate to more, is we see a vision for tattoos as an evolutionary form of self-expression. We think tattoos can change and adapt to who you are at each point in time. And we see semi-permanent tattoos as a really beautiful and artistic way of bringing that to life. Hmm. Yeah. So like I know a lot of people who they get a very specific tattoo. I actually saw a gentleman at one of our 1517 socials the other night who both he and his son that he was at the social with had the same tattoo on the same spot on their arm, um, on separate arms, of course. Uh, and, I, and I've seen the same tattoo on a lot of different people. And, you know, it means a very specific thing. It's very, uh, to somebody who has it, it's very uh, philosophically charged. Mm-hmm. And I've thought before, like, that would be cool to have, but then at the same time, too, like, what if my philosophical system or my beliefs change, right? Do I want to have this big tattoo on my arm that uh, I might not identify with anymore? So th- that, that does make sense. Um, and I mean, look, at the same time, we, we do love permanent work. We do have a lot of respect for the industry as it is in the community, as it's been built over the last, you know, hundreds of years, really. Uh, we just see a lot more room for growth and change. Yeah, absolutely. So you've raised a couple million dollars. You've been working on this for four years and you guys have yet to launch the product. Is that correct? That is correct. So can you walk me through what your fundraising process is like? Yeah, sure. So I, I think it might be helpful at first to kind of walk through the fundraising history. It might provide a little more context mm-hmm. as to how everything came together. So for the first two years of of the company, we were 100% funded from competitions and grants. We we hardly spoke to any investors, um, and we had raised around 90K that was completely non-dilutive. And this is something I recommend all founders look into, especially when you're pre-launch, especially when you're early. And I'm happy to talk more about this down the road. Um, In September of 2016, so around two years after we started research, we raised a 500K pre-seed round led by Techstars Ventures. And a little over a year after that, we raised a $3.3 million seed round, which was co-led by Techstars Ventures and Canaan Partners with participation from, as we said earlier, some awesome, awesome people, including 1517 Fund. So those grants and competitions that you got the uh, initial 90K from, yes. um, where did you start with that? University. Hmm. Um, so I actually have a bit of a, a different opinion on being a student founder. I think there's a lot of you know, very strong narrative out there supporting you know, people dropping out of school and, and working on your, your thing full time. And full disclosure, I, I am a dropout myself and I have taken you know, some time off school and I'm not planning on being in for a while. But, but that being said, in the very early days of a company or a project, a university can actually provide a really strong support system. And many of them are not exclusive to the students at that university. 
Um, for example, we, we participated in Princeton, Princeton's Tiger launch and we never went to Princeton. Um, and there's a lot of competitions and grants and programs and accelerators that are all at school that can help you get off the ground. Oh, you know, one of the things I, I point out to people all the time is if you're a student at the university, you're paying to be there. You might as well as try to get as much value as you can out of it. Uh, and even if you're not paying to be there, you're, you're still probably paying for some university services in some capacity at other universities. Um, exactly. And there's also the component, too, that even if you're a dropout, I, I only actually learned this recently. You know, I'm a dropout myself. Um, dropouts are counted as alumni for universities. So you still have access to a lot of the alumni services that graduates would have access to. Uh, and for some universities, this includes things like venture capital funding. Yep. I actually learned that myself as well, just by being on the alumni newsletter and being like, what, what am I, why am I getting this? But <laughs> yes, you are considered alumni and you do have access to resources. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you, you know, I think that universities are good in the sense that they lump a lot of really smart driven people together, right? Uh, whether or not you need to go through and actually receive that credential at the end of the day is a totally separate question of whether or not there is value in having a place where a bunch of smart, driven people end up being together. Yep. So uh, the grants and the competitions, you started at the university level. Uh, what was the last one that you received before you guys decided, we're actually going to go raise venture capital funding? Well, it wasn't like... Um like, okay, we finished this last competition. Now let's go fundraise. It was, it was, yeah, what, was that, what was the decision process like? Were you like, oh, does it make sense for us to raise a lot more money than, you know, 90 K over two years? So in hindsight, it might seem like that in the moment, our strategy was let's exhaust literally every possible resource there is every possible competition grant. Let's apply for it. You know, let's throw a hat in the box. And at some point, we, we, you know, we, we won a good amount of them and we lost a whole lot more. But that gave us around two years of runway to you know, rent out a lab space uptown in Harlem, Harlem, New York, and just focus on the tech. And in that time, we weren't super focused on fundraising. We were really just heads down focused on the product. And the decision to then go raise venture was, well, A, we had exhausted all other options. Um, and B, you know, this is not a good reason to fundraise, especially externally, but for us, it was the truth in the first round, but we were running out of money and we needed to put fuel in the tank somehow. And we felt that there were really no other options out there. So how did you start that fundraising process? Let's walk through that. You know, I've talked to Michael and Danielle. I've talked to some angel investors, a bunch of different people on the podcast, mm -hmm. uh, but let, let's actually get the process from someone who decided to go from grants and competitions to a pre-seed round and then a seed round. What did that look like for you? Yeah, that's a really good question and I'm happy to dive into it. Um, before I do, just, you know, friendly disclaimer, I am a first-time founder. Um, this was just my experience and it might not be true for everyone. Also, it might seem like a lot, but I promise you all of this is learnable and we've all still got a very long way to go. Um, the first thing I guess about, about the process is that, that was especially shocking to me was how much work 
went in before we sent out even the first intro email. I mean, it, before our first round, if you would ask me about fundraising, I would think of, all right, I'm sitting in you know, a VC's office. I've got their you know, brand name sparkling water in hand. I'm walking them through a deck. Man, then, I really you know, wish we had 1517 <laughs> branded water. Next round, you guys will do it. Um, but, and, then, and then five minutes later, negotiating term sheets. And that, that could not be further from the truth. And I didn't realize that there was so much work that happens before. And I think the reason why is because it's, it's a lot less fun. It's a lot less exciting. Um, but it's super important to do well. And I guess the way you can kind of consider that work is, is primarily research-based. Um, the first thing is, is kind of understanding how fundraising works. If you've never raised before, if you've never really thought about it so much, I would not start by just you know, hitting up investors left and right. I would first kind of you know, sit down, um, talk to other founders or mentors or advisors who you feel close to, and just try and learn a lot about the process and how it all works. And I mean, I guess listening to this podcast is, is a good first step. Um, I understand that you know, some people are super early and don't have that kind of network built out yet. And the good news is there's a lot of really great content online. Uh, three of, of my go-tos that I found especially helpful, and if you could only have these three, I think it'd be just fine. Um, first is a book called Venture Deals, uh, mm -hmm. written by Brad Feld and Jason Mendelson. This reads almost like a textbook. But it literally has every you know term sheet, term sheet clause, has every you know step of the way in the process. Talks to you about what venture is, and it'll really school you in everything you need to know. Um, for some more current content, I recommend reading two blogs. One, Alex Iskold, who runs TechStars New York City. Um, disclaimer: he he is an investor of ours, but he's also a superhuman. Um, and B, uh, a blog written by Mark Suster, who's a partner at Upfront Ventures, who I do not know, I've never met, but his blog has a lot of really awesome content. And both have like entire sections on fundraising. What makes their, their content so good? I guess it's honest. Um, it'll actually give you insight into the process. It'll actually give you insight into what's going through a VC's head. There's, there's no bullshit about it. And looking back in hindsight, I guess this is especially why I relate to it so much. When reading their content, I just find myself nodding my head aggressively, agreeing that, oh my God, this is how it actually happened. I wish I had known that before. So uh, when you actually started walking through that process, what are some of those things that you wish you had known before? Stay super organized. Mm. Um, the first round we, we had raised, we were not super organized. Uh, we had like a very basic Google sheet with, you know, investor name, their, their, um, their fund name, and, you know, maybe a little bit about them. And Honestly, not, that sounds more organized than a lot of people's approaches. Oh, man. You've, we, so that's, that was a nightmare to stay organized. Um, the second round, we were much more diligent, much more process-oriented. And we had populated and, and kind of designed a template in Google Sheets that we had also shared with, with mentors and advisors and, and investors that, you know, helped us point us in the right direction that kept track of when we last spoke to the investor, who introduced you, 
specifically mm -hmm. what the next steps are in that conversation. If you need an introduction, how warm you kind of gauge they are. Are they super warm and interested? Are they going to be a follow on kind of investor? Are they like super just stringing you along? You know, keeping track of all this data is crucial. I mean, especially the last time you spoke. So then you can kind of just filter out who haven't I spoke to in a week? Who haven't I, you know, had an email with? Let me, let me follow up with them. And, you know, you might be a really smart person with a great memory, but when you're conducting hundreds of meetings every month and that's on top of running a business day to day, you're going to forget a lot of stuff and you've got to make sure you're ahead of that. Yeah. So walk me through the rest of the process after you decided to, you know, really dive in and uh, start understanding what this looks like with the resources that are available out there. Yeah. So once, once you've kind of figured out, oh, I mean, taking a step back, once you've determined internally that A, you want and need to raise venture, that all other options, you know, crowdfunding, equity crowdfunding, competitions, grants, all of those other possible avenues of fundraising aren't options. I mean, venture is not the only option, especially early on, especially pre-launch. Once you determine that, well, I need to raise venture and you've already done your research, you've already populated a list of investors you want to reach, you've already thought about you know, the milestones you're going to be hitting, whether or not those are meaningful to get you to profitability or to fundraising your next round. Once you've gotten all that basic work done, then you can start figuring out, okay, who of this list of investors who I know are fits for my business and invest in my sector and stage, who of them can I get a warm introduction to? And what that means is who of them do I know somebody who also knows them and feels comfortable, you know, vouching for me on my behalf. So when you go about asking for those introductions, how do you do it? So the, the biggest, I mean, I mean, growth hack or trick that we've learned here is to have a very meaningful, forwardable introduction ready to send to your mentor or advisor to send to that point of contact. And what that means is you want to have very concisely and clearly explained who you are, what your company does, why you're fundraising or what you're fundraising for. And most importantly, and I cannot stress this enough, why the hell that person might find you relevant. You know, if I sent all that first part to an investor who, you know, is super upstream, does growth stage e-commerce businesses, they're going to think, why the hell is this guy trying to talk to me? Conversely, if I sent that to somebody who's a fit and I've done my own research and homework and I've said, hey, I think you're a fit for our company because you've invested in A, B, and C comparable companies in retail and consumer. And I also see that you have a background in science. You know, that, that's a lot more meaningful and you're much more likely to get a, oh, wow, I actually think this guy's interesting. I think we can be a fit. I'm more than happy to talk. So I think this is important because this goes back to something that you and I were talking about before we actually started recording this conversation, which is that while it's often easier, quote unquote, to raise money if you have some, if you're, you know, post-launch and have some sort of traction, there are investors out there who will invest in pre-launch companies. Um, they just are probably different people than the people who are saying, I won't launch, I won't invest in pre-launch companies. 
Exactly. And, and I also, I don't know if I agree that it's necessarily easier or harder to raise. At oh, that's, that's why I use the quote unquote, right? Yeah. yeah. It's, it's super hard always, unless you're like the top 1.1% of companies with, you know, a founder who's exited 14,000 times and he's started his first company while he was in the womb. Unless you're that kind of person and have that kind of track record, fundraising is going to be hard. Yeah. Um, I've so, never met a real person who says fundraising is easy. This yeah. new, that, that doesn't matter like what kind of company you're fundraising for. Even people raising venture capital funds will say like, <laughs> in fact, in many cases, they'll say it's even harder than raising for a company. Yeah. And, and believe it or not, those TechCrunch headlines oftentimes leave out a lot of the meat of the story of how they got there. Shocking, I know. Well, let's talk about that. Uh, sure. Um, what do you want to talk about? Have, have you guys been featured on TechCrunch or a similar kind of publication? And what does uh, that kind of earned media actually do for you, if anything? Uh, okay, very good question. So, and I actually have a mixed feeling about this. So our very first round, I actually think came together, uh, funny story, because of a TechCrunch article we did and because we were at TechCrunch Disrupt New York. Now, I don't like conferences in general. I think generally they're a big waste of time, but this one might have actually saved the company. So we, we went to TechCrunch Disrupt New York in I think like March or May of, of 2016 before we raised our pre-seed. Wound up having a great conversation with a reporter there who did an article on us. And that article kind of spun to a bunch of articles. Um, Techstars saw the article and we had met them before, you know, just from around New York and the startup community. And they said, hey, are you guys, are you guys raising? And we said, yes, we are raising. And they were interested and we had a great relationship with them and they wound up wanting to invest. We also met another one of our investors from that round at that conference. And so I guess actually in that case, press played a really, really important role to help get us to close the round. In general though, I, I don't like to read you know, startup news. I don't like to read TechCrunch headlines for, for many reasons. Primarily, I just feel shitty about myself because <laughs> it just seems like why the hell, how the hell are these companies raising 20 bazillion dollars when I'm you know, just struggling to close a 500K pre-seed? How is that the reality of, of our company's existence? What are we doing wrong? What are they doing right? Um, and that's just not the case. I mean, honestly, I, I think TechCrunch is, is kind of venture or startup propaganda. And it's just so far from reality that I, I don't think it's helpful for people to stay up to date with that stuff, at least, at least in that sort of context. Well, I, I think it's probably a similar psychological effect to what people experience when they you know, already are you know, unsure about something and then they decide to go on Instagram or Facebook where people actively select to broadcast the best parts of their lives, right? And then you end up comparing yourself against them. I and mean, earned media in many cases is very similar because no one's going to write a story about the hard parts of fundraising. Um, and if they do, it's like for a very specific niche who is probably not in the same place when they decide to go and look around on TechCrunch like a lot of people do. I am once again nodding aggressively. <laughs> I wasn't sure if that silence was Zach, you're wrong, or I'm nodding aggressively. I am nodding. I am nodding aggressively. I, I completely agree with you. 
Um, and by the way, after our, our second round, we actually actively decided to not do any press for a couple of reasons. Um, for, first reason was we thought a lot about, you know, why would someone want to do press? What are the actual reasons aside from an ego boost, which I don't think is a good reason to do it, um, to do press. And I think it boils down to A, your fundraising, uh, B, you are recruiting, or C, you're trying to get customers. And at that time, I mean, we were, we were still pre-launch. We had just raised, we didn't need to raise any more money and we weren't needing to focus. We weren't, we were, sorry, we weren't focusing on, on recruiting. So we really decided, I mean, l- I mean, let's look inside. The only reason we have to do this is because, you know, we're going to get a lot of outreach from friends and family telling us how great and awesome our company is. And, you know, that's not a good enough reason to do that. I think it's, um, you know, it, it's fairly similar to something that I experienced with authors, right? Uh, I know a number of fairly successful authors. I, I know a lot of people who want to be authors or are going through that process right now. And uh, just to use an example, I have, a, I have a friend who is an author, lives in Brooklyn, who uh, his book has been talked about and he's been brought on as a guest on the subject of North Korea a number of times on like Fox News and CNN, Right. Uh, and then he'll go on a podcast. It's a, a niche podcast for a very specific audience. And his book will sell many more copies from that small niche audience than on national television, right? Because it's a question of like, where are the people that you're trying to get in front of if it's for fundraising, if it's for recruiting, or if it's for any of those other purposes, where are they actually hanging out? And it's not like getting earned media doesn't take time, energy, and money. Mm-hmm. The, the time, energy, and money you could be spending... Uh, trying to get earned media for fundraising purposes or for recruiting purposes could be time, money, and energy that you could just be out there just fundraising or recruiting at the same time. Yep, I agree. So is there anything that you think is often left out of this uh, fundraising story or process when you hear other people talk about it that you just wish that you would be able to talk about? Oh, man, yes. Okay, so so one one really really big thing is end of the day and end, end of the day investors are humans and unfortunately this is annoying but it's reality humans follow crowds and most of the time spent fundraising let's say it took you four months i'm willing to bet that at least two to three of those two to three of those months were spent just trying to get one investor to commit Mm. And then depending on the brand equity of that one investor, the rest of the round will pour in like it's raining cats and dogs and you'll have investors reaching out to you or at least you'll have a stake in the ground. At least you'll have someone committed. And even that sends a positive, strong signal to the rest of your fundraising process. And that's something I didn't really realize before getting into it. And it was a really draining process just to get to the first yes. And I wish I had known that once we had that first yes, the rest was, you know, different, challenging, but relatively easy compared to getting to the first yes. Yeah, I know uh, Michael and Danielle like to say that they're happy to be the first ones in when raising around, right? And if you haven't actually gone through that process or you haven't watched other people go through that process, you don't realize how valuable that is, even if it is a relatively small fund that does not yet have a lot of brand equity, just to have somebody saying, we'll actually write the check 
means that a lot of the other investors will say, okay, we'll write the checks as well. Exactly. And at the same time, I mean, investors are busy people and they'll, they will respond to urgency. And what urgency means to investors in a fundraising process is the percent of your fundraise that you've got committed. So let's say you're going out to raise, you know, $1.5 million round and you have 200K committed. You know, it's good that you have some commitments, but in reality, the investor knows that if they can only focus on closing five deals, you're not going to be in that five because you've got a long way to go mm-hmm. before you're getting there. Um, but once you've got maybe 50 to 60% committed, you become urgent because that, that round can close in a matter of weeks. And if they don't pay attention to you, they might get left out. Josh, anything else that you'd like to leave our listeners with? Um, I guess stay, stay strong. It is a very draining process. And if you had to take one piece of feedback from this, just really, really, really look inside and make sure that you need to go down the venture route and you've really exhausted all other potential options, all other potential funding sources before you make that decision. Josh, thanks so much. Of course. Thanks so much for having me. It's a lot of fun. 